Thank you, Ruth. And thanks again to the worship team for leading us this morning. Always prepares my heart to look into the Word. Let's, um, let's talk to the author before we look at the book. Father, we do thank you for this time, this quiet hour to, um, to seek you, to seek communion with you. We come here as, uh, as a body, as brothers and sisters, as a refuge from the anxieties of the week, from the noise around us, from the noise that comes with both praise and blame and confusion and, and arrogance and, and imaginations of our, of our own um, our own fleshly desires, our own thoughts that we, uh, we see. We want to be still before you. We want to see clearly in your light the pattern of our lives that we are stitching together. We want to be able to see that and, and look at it and, and submit it to you and, and ask that you to fix the gaps and uh, fix the, the things where we started going wrong and, and, uh, and fix the sin in our lives and our relationships. Father, we ask that your spirit fall on us this morning, that it fall on us with power and glory, that it fall on us in insight and wisdom and understanding and vision. And Father, we ask that you help us to, be, to learn to be content as we leave our lives in your hands, that we continue to trust you so that we can be content by leaving those people we love so much into your hands and content that we leave all the, the causes that seem to, to occupy our minds and preoccupy our thoughts. Father, we want to be content to leave them into your hands and to live lives of trust and worthiness for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted uh, Ruth to read that because it's very important that we see the context of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning in Colossians. And I just kind of wanted to bring us up to speed. And it just kind of paints that big picture of what Paul is getting at. And I think it will hopefully become a little bit more clear uh, later on. Uh, most of us do know we take um, a lot of pictures, a lot of family pictures for holidays, special events, vacations, and, and we want to keep these photos for memories and, and, and flip back through them, and, or these days I guess you look at them on your phone, uh, but we keep them in, and sometimes we want to post them on Instagram or Facebook, and uh, generally speaking we want to put our, our best foot forward, we want to put our best face forward on these, on these photographs, and uh, that this event was just perfect and this holiday was just wonderful and, and our family is just perfect and our marriage is blissful and, and it's just all this, but, but we all know that's not true. And uh, so I brought some pictures. You probably have seen like them on the, on the Internet, and I've just picked out some of my favorites. Uh, just some things that um, show that in a humorous way that things aren't always perfect, right? I mean, families aren't always perfect. Marriages aren't perfect. So we're going to be, as soon as I can get this on here, we're going to be looking at uh, the last section of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4 and look at this new life in an old world. But I thought we'd put out some pictures just to see, uh, you know, just kind of tell us what we already know. Uh, I've added the captions to, that were appeared on them. I like this one, when you thought you were the fun mom for a holiday card this year. It didn't really turn out the way you think it is. Or uh, like this, marry everything. Just, you know, okay, we're giving up. That's just. <laughs> I love this one. 
I, I love the big sister looking at her brother going, what are you doing here? <laughs> just, just the love between brothers and sisters. Uh, when all the bribes failed, that's, what, that's how they titled this one. They went ahead and sent it out anyway. Or this one, Merry Christmas. Um, I love this one. My great-grandmother, definitely a legend. <laughs> I like this one too. I was baptized when I was about 10, and yes, those are my legs. <laughs> and I'm thinking, did the priest never sprinkle somebody that could stand, you know, on their, on their face? But anyway, it's just not exactly the, the moment you want to remember about your baptism. And I love this one too. <laughs> and this one, she says, we just finally all gave up. We're going to send this card out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And I really like this next one. One of our kids was going through a phase. We're going to let you guess which one. <laughs> so we know where we know where it's not true. It's not that's true that nobody none of the families are perfect. None of the marriages are perfect. And when Sue and I got married and and uh started and we and got she got pregnant with Katie and and uh this was in that time period when when we had a lot of teaching on the family, on the Christian family, on the Christian marriage and all that, and you kind of get the idea that, it, that the family almost became idolized. It almost, almost replaced Christianity as a, as a whole. And uh, we had all these teachers out there telling us these formulas, and um, this is how you have the perfect marriage. This is how you can raise the perfect kid. And you do these things, you do these things, and things will turn out just right. And then we realized it was all a lie. You know, it was just not, it wasn't going to happen that way. And, and uh, it kind of was, was frustrated. Then like the, like the Wizard of Oz, the curtain was pulled back on some of these people. And we realized that they, were, they themselves were involved in scandal and unfaithfulness and uh, even abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And you just kind of get, dis, you know, disoriented and, and kind of disillusioned. Um, one of my teachers was the, one of the first classes at Dallas Seminary was one of the it was one of the first places where you could take a course on the Christian home and I remember Dr. Hendricks one of the last times I heard Dr. Hendricks speak he said um, he said the the church has just gone to seed over the family and um, and he says because you're hearing it from me that should make it all the more significant because he actually taught the course on it and so we realized that this isn't is isn't what we thought it was uh, so when we look at this, this section in Colossians where he's going to be talking about these relationships, then it's important that we, we understand what the purpose is and, and the context of, of what he's doing, of what Paul is doing in this, in this context of biblical marriage. Um, let, me, let me back up here for a minute. I think it's important that we understand the time and the place that Paul was speaking and he was writing to so that we kind of get an idea of what he is trying to get at in these instructions about marriage and about children and then on about uh, uh, the really tough issue of slavery and, and workforce. So I think it's important that we realize kind of where he is he's going with this. He is, uh, Augustine, or Augustus, Caesar Augustus had just issued a decree in the late uh, first, first century, first ancient century and first century B.C., wanting to reestablish the, the society of the, Roman, of the Roman Empire. And he was going to try to change everything, so he set down some rules about what the house was supposed to look like. 
all because he wanted the loyalty to the emperor. And he knew that the houses, that the homes was where these places, this first place where uh, values are formed, identities are formed, and, and relationships are formed. But ultimately, he wanted the household to raise good Roman citizens. So he set up this high kind of hierarchy and these rules. For example, it, it was you had to get married. If you didn't get married, you, uh, you owed some really steep taxes. And this is how you were supposed to raise your kids so that they all become good Roman citizens. This is how you were supposed to treat your household, the slaves, so that they too become good Roman citizens so that they pay their taxes. They're loyal to the emperor and they make their sacrifices to the, emperor, the imperial gods and all this kind of thing. So that's what he's getting at. And he used Aristotle in this uh, as, a, as a model, mainly a lot of Greek philosophers, but primarily Aristotle. And Aristotle laid down, if you're interested in some, some where my sources are, I can't footnote a sermon, right? But if you want to see my sources, just text me or email me, and I can send you some of these historical documents. Um, but Aristotle had a, had a particular view about marriage and about uh, the genders and about the sexes. And he, would, he said that, uh, that masculinity, that the male is, is the, the perfect body. He said the male body is the perfect body, which is obviously evidenced by the person standing in front of you this morning, <laughs> that the, the, the man is the perfect body. And he said that they were known for their perfection as um, that uh, they, they were strong, they were rational, they were spiritual, and they were generally superior, and they were active. Where they said the female, they inhabited or they embodied the, the, the least favorable attributes of humanity. Instead, they were, they were weaker, uh, they were imperfect, they were irrational, they were physical and not spiritual, and they were inferior and passive. So that's kind of how he, he viewed this. And so when we come, we have to understand this because when we come to passages like Colossians or Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter, and, he, and Paul is talking about men and women, we don't want to get this twisted. Because a lot of people have twisted what Paul is saying and come up with some, some um, um, ideas that just, that just what Paul is not saying, what he is not doing. And so we hear these things and people have taken what Paul has said and they've used it to reinforce patriarchy, uh, even racism, uh, slavery, even abuse in the, in, under the guise of obedience to Christ. So he has people have taken these words, and it makes people sometimes want to squirm in the pew or squirm in your seats and start looking for the exit signs and saying, well, I'm out of here. But it's important that we understand this is what Paul is talking about. This is where he is. This is, what, this is who he's addressing. This is the time that he is, he is looking at. And Paul, not, and, and Paul even recognized that even this spilled over into Judaism as well. If you look at... Uh, 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 Philo or Josephus, they were saying much the same thing, that uh, the male was the one that was closest to divinity and things like that. So this is what Paul is addressing. So what is Paul doing and what is he not doing? For one thing, he's not concerned with human institutions and conventions. He's not saying, I'm establishing this as this biblical thing to do, and uh, like uh, this marriage is, is what my, I want you to have a good, perfect marriage just for the sake of having a good, perfect marriage. And he's not saying that I'm advocating for slavery or anything like that. He's, just, he's not concerned necessarily with the institutions. 
Paul is not writing a how to have a good marriage self-help book. Okay? He's not writing this thing and he's, you know, with, with every possible exception, and this is how you have a happy marriage. And Paul is not writing a treatise on marriage or slavery or politics or child rearing. He's not writing this thing with all the possible implications and applications that this could have. But what Paul is doing, he is appealing to their love and reverence for Christ. And he's calling them to be good disciples. The people that would live differently in the world they're in. That he's calling them to serve Christ, which means love and self-sacrifice and, and, and submission. He is calling all to live as disciples that necessarily involve this love and self-sacrifice as disciples of Christ. And Paul assumes these institutions exist. He's now telling them how to live a new life in an old world. So that's why I wanted Ruth to read that first section, because that's what it's all about. He has this metaphor, uses this metaphor of clothing. He says, you're going to take off the old clothes, and now this renewed life in the new kingdom, you're supposed to put on the new clothes. He says, you've been called by God. You've been set apart by God. You are beloved by God. You are set apart to do a certain task. Therefore, dress accordingly. And that's what he was saying us to do. Now he's saying, and in these specific situations, this is kind of what it looks like. So I want us to get the big context, the big picture here, before we look at these specific little uh, instructions that Paul has. So Paul is saying that, um, that this is what we're doing. So I, a couple of things I want you to remember here. That one, he is being subversive. He is trying to transform these institutions and conventions that we see in our culture. Whether it's the first culture in, 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 first, century B, in first century Rome or whether it's 21st century in Hood River, Oregon. He wants to see how we can transform these things and subvert them that make them look like as Christians. And he says it's already, you're already being subversive. Because he's talking about a room when this letter is being read. He's talking, about a, talking to a room that's full of mixed genders. He's talking to a room of, of mixed status, of slave, slave owners and slaves themselves. It got Onesimus and Philemon in the same room. He's talking about uh, men and women in the same room. He's talking about barbarians. He's talking about Greeks. He's talking about Jews. That alone is subversive of what was going on in the first century. So this is what he's reading to. This is what he's reading to the people who are having probably Onesimus read to the, to the congregation. It's already being subversive. And also we need to remember that they're listening to this letter read in one sitting. So they just heard that they are all heirs of Christ. They just heard that they are all brothers and sisters. They just heard that all Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing. They just heard that you need to put on these clothings of things of gentle tenderness, of, of patience, of gentleness and kindness. We have to put this on, he says, and, and that you are bound in the perfect bond, which is love. He just, we just heard this. So we need to keep that in mind when we look at this passage. And it's, um, he begins, first of all, with the home. He says, putting the life of the new age into practice in the home, verses 18 through 21. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children so that they will not become disheartened. 
he's addressing this as this normal institution, but he's saying to live it in a distinctively Christian way. Don't live it like the way Augustus is telling you or Aristotle is telling you. You live it in a distinctively Christian way. And he says, the, he says begins with a woman, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Paul basically repeats all these instructions. I know this sounds kind of academic, but I think it's important we talk through some of this. Paul t- says the same thing in Ephesians, but adds a lot more meat to it. These are kind of just the bare bones. Ephesians is a little bit longer letter, and he adds stuff to it. So he says in, in Ephesians as well, wives, submit to your husbands. What he's saying is, wives, resist the temptation to rule over your husband. Resist that temptation to govern them. And we know wives, women can, can govern their husbands in a very direct way. And we also know that they can try to rule and govern in, through domestic blackmail or maybe passive-aggressive. Uh, you know, you may have this wife that looks so su- submissive and sweet, and she's this nice and sweet, but she burns the toast. And let me tell you, there are about a hundred ways to burn toast. He's saying resist that. Now the question is, is he only telling wife, wives to submit? No. If you go to Ephesians... He's saying that begins that whole section, submit to one another. In fact, the line that we use, wives, submit to your husbands, the verb's not even there. It's in the verse before that. Submit to one another, and then he says, wives, resist the temptation to rule over your husbands. And he doesn't go into all kinds of exceptions and explain exactly how it works. He just says, you know, this is, don't try to rule your husbands. Don't try to govern them. Don't try to manipulate them. Don't grasp for power. Now, I did my pastoral internship in uh, Baltimore. Um, I was working under a pastor who was really not that much older than me, maybe five years older than me, but he had five years more experience than I had. And uh, he was telling me about this, about he, he was in that time period where we were repeating and you know, all these teachings we had about marriage and how to have the perfect marriage and what men are supposed to do and women are supposed to do. And he, ha- he was telling me this story to tell me a lesson that he learned, okay? He said he had this woman in his church, which I knew. Her name was Janet. And she was a very, she was a queer woman, very strong, uh, uh, very opinionated, very intelligent. And uh, she came to Christ, and so John was teaching all this stuff about marriage one time, and he was telling how she needed to go home and she needed to submit to her husband. And so she goes home and basically becomes his maid and servant, you know, bringing him a sandwich and, you know, bringing him a beer by his, you know, the TV, on the TV tray and all this stuff. And he finally said, we need to go talk to the pastor that's teaching you all this. He was not a Christian. But he said, but pastor said, you do these things and he will come to Christ. So the two of them go, and they sit in the pastor's office, and uh, her husband says, I want to know when this submission BS is going to stop. <laughs> and Janet looked at him and said, right now. <laughs> <laughs> because for him, that's not the woman he married. The woman he fell in love with was smart and intelligent and, argued to, and argumentative and, and had her own opinions, and he, that's what he liked. And so they had to find a way how that worked out in, in their marriage. 
And he's not just saying that just to the women, but he's saying it to the men as well. Submit to one another. And he tells the husband to love your wives in Ephesians as Christ loved the church. That's their way of submitting. Now, did he only tell the husband to love? If he only tell the wife to submit and only the husband to love? No. He said, submit to one another. And earlier on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, love one another. So the wife has to love too. But he's telling the husband, which is totally radical, totally transformative, totally subversive of the system, that they are to love their wives. Because the marriage in that time was like a patron-client kind of relationship. The husband was the benefactor, and the wife was the receiving of the status, the money, the protection, the home, etc. And she was supposed to respond with subservient and behavior and, and gratitude and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, this is different. This is different. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the command. He never told a husband to rule over his wife. He told him, told them to love her. If I were to paraphrase this verse, these two verses and the verses in Ephesians, I would paraphrase it like this. Women, don't go grasping for power. Men, be willing to give up the power and control. Love as Christ loved the church. Think about it. Has anybody ever given up more control and power than God himself? Nobody has given up more control or power than God himself by sending the Son and dying on the cross. We call that love. And I think that's what he's getting at here. That this relationship should be one of mutual submission and mutual love for each other. Again, he's not saying this just to have the perfect marriage, just for the sake of having a perfect marriage. It's all about glorifying Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children so that they will not become disheartened. Now, you, we can overemphasize uh, verse 1, the first, I mean, verse 20, 20. And say, children, obey your parents. And have the attitude, you know, spare the, rod, spare the rod, spoil the child. But we know how much abuse has gone on in homes. And we know that parents can take this to the extreme and beat the rebellion out of them. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, children, don't be snarky. <laughs> your parents are going to tell you to do pretty much, most parents are going to tell you to do things that are good. They're not going to, most parents are not going to abuse you, but some will, I, I know. But they're saying, do this because it makes the world a better place. It makes dinner time more peaceful. It just makes things better. And then he turns around and says to the fathers, but not too harsh. Now, if you take that to the extreme, where you say, oh, we let the kids do, we don't want to stifle them in any way, let them do whatever, and then life is miserable for everybody. That they can do what they want and trample on rights of everybody else in the family. Again, we have a balance here. You discipline the children. Children obey. It makes the world better. But parents, use some common sense. Don't crush their spirit. 
Don't crush their hopes. What he's saying here is the kids need discipline and the parents need discipline. Both of them need discipline for the homes to function. And this is how we function in a Christian family. The next section, that's the tough one. Putting the life in the new age into the practice in the workplace. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every respect. Not only when they are watching like those who are strictly people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ, for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there will be no exceptions. And masters, offer your slaves justice and equality, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. What he's telling the slaves, we have to realize that in this time period, slavery was how you got things done. That was the way the economic system worked. Uh, if you wanted to become a slave, the easiest way to become a slave is to lose a battle. Because when you lost the battle, you were, you were ushered in and you were brought into slaves. And what he's saying here is that, that if you're working, this is how you get things done. And back in the ancient world, you do it to the Lord. And, but then he tells them you get an inheritance, which is totally, totally out of their realm of thinking, that they would receive some inheritance but they will. And he says, don't try to cover up shoddy work just by preparing working when somebody's watching. You do it as always you're doing it for the Lord. Do it for Him. That's how you work. But then he tells the masters, he says, offer them, and literally this is what it says, offer them justice and equality totally subversive. It's the reason I think the book of Philemon, go back and read that sometime. It's a little bitty book, but I think it's one of the basic examples of what New Testament living is all about, what Christian living is all about. Onesimus, who probably delivered this letter back to Colossae, where Philemon was at church, he sent Onesimus back, who was a runaway slave. He said, Onesimus, go back. And work as if you're working for the Lord. And then he tells Philemon, treat him like a brother. Now that just rips the whole system apart. That just rearranges everything in this whole time. And I've talked to non-believers who say, well, Paul was okay with slavery. And if you read some of the slavery narratives in our culture... And when we think of slavery, we think of racial implications of that. And we think of the, the African slave trade. And they say, oh, Christianity, they, they support slavery. And you would read some of the stories from the slaves in the slave days, and they would say, tell me about Jesus, but don't tell me about Paul. Don't read Paul to me. Because the masters would use Paul as an excuse to abuse and control their slaves. So that's what we usually think about. But he's saying, offer them equality and justice. You treat them like a brother. You treat them differently. And a lot of people you'll hear, a lot of non-Christians I talk to say, why didn't Paul just come out and say, slavery is evil, slavery is wrong? Because we do have the Exodus story. 
you know, where, Paul, where God freed his people. And I say, yeah, that would sure make sense. That would sure make a lot easier here in the 21st century. But that's just the way everything got done. I mean, think about our culture. We know that the, inter- the, um, the internal combustion engine, cars and planes, we know that it pollutes the air horribly. We also know that plastic is a horrible thing for the, envir- for the environment. We talk about this huge island of plastic that's floating around in the Pacific Ocean. We know those things are bad. But we can't just come back one day and say, okay, we're getting rid of all cars and we're getting rid of all plastics. Now, we can try to do this and try to wean ourselves off these things and stuff like that, but, but to come in and ho- totally change everything, that's impossible. It would have been the same thing for Paul to say, hey, we're doing away with the slavery system, this whole thing. But what he is saying, he says, the system exists. This is how we do it as a Christian. This is how we do it as Christ followers. We serve as if we're serving Jesus himself. And the masters treat them like brothers. Totally subversive in what they're doing today. Paul knew exactly what was going on. He knew um, the order, and he knew that in the home, this is where your identities were formed, it's where your loyalties were formed, and what he's saying is that this is a new life in a new kingdom, and we do it differently. We do it differently. The code that he's giving us is now a Christian code and not the code of Aristotle, not the code, not, not the code of other Greek philosophers or Jewish rabbis. This is a new thing. And what he's saying is basically to the powerful, he's saying to the powerful, you have duties, not just rights. And he's telling the powerless, you have rights, not just duties. He is balancing it out in the situation he finds us in. And everyone is called, he says, to do this, to to be like Christ. And they're called not according to the nature of, of men and women, but they're called according to a new nature in Christ as brothers and sisters equal. When we share Christ with other people and we share Christianity with other people, we sometimes have it in our head that, oh, if I can just prove that the resurrection was true, that I can prove the resurrection, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then this person will come to Christ. Or if I can prove that that the, the universe was created by an uncaused cause that we call God. And I can prove that, uh, that God, didn't, you know, I have this philosophical argument for it. We think that that person will come to Christ. And I disagree with that. I, there's a place for that. But you have to give people a reason to want it to be true before they will believe it to be true. We have to give them a reason to want it to be true. That when we share the gospel, when we talk about Jesus, and we talk about Christ and what he's made a difference in, we want them to want it to be true, even if they're not there yet. Oh, I wish that were true. And we can say, it is. It is so good. It is true. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's just saying that we need to live in a way so that the pagans around us will want it to be true, even if they're not sure yet. We want this to be true. 
So the timeless and universal principle is simply this. Christians are to live respectable and appealing lives among non-Christians in order to bear witness to Jesus and bring glory to God. That's his whole point. He's not writing a self-help how to have a good marriage book. He's not writing instructions on how to relate on the workforce, even though that helps. His whole point, his whole timeless universal principle is that we are to live respectable, engaging, appealing, winsome lives among non-Christians that bear witness to Jesus and bring glory to him so that others will want it to be true even if they don't quite believe it just yet, that it sounds too good to be true. We're going to celebrate that truth this morning with communion. And we do communion uh, twice, twice a month in this church, and we'll be passing it out um, this morning. But um, our, our salvation is uh, brought about through the action of God becoming human, one of us. Um, the power of the death and resurrection of Christ uh, is the work of our salvation lies precisely in the fact that Jesus is in communion with us and we dwell in him. The fact that he became a human. Uh, there's one single human common nature. Common nature. Uh, in spite of the myth of our individualism here in America, we live in communion with God. And salvation is that new life lived in communion with him and in communion with each other. And I thought if anything, if, if communion was ever appropriate to a passage, it was appropriate this morning. Because that is the whole point Paul is getting at, that we live in communion together. Paul knows this that he became what we are so that we can become what he is. That's what the church fathers said. So we're going to celebrate communion. That communion was broken at the fall, was broken with creation. Our communion with the animals were broken. Our communion with each other was broken. Our communion with God was broken. But through Jesus Christ, he has instituted, reinstituted this new, new age in the biblical sense of the word this new creation, this new covenant, where we dwell in communion together.